Well, unless anyone has uh, objections, I'm going to go ahead and uh, kick us off here. Uh, it's a little bit of a smaller crowd. It's one of those uh, beginning of the month things. I'm always curious to see how many people stick around with us month after month after month as we get through this. So it's uh, it's fun. Uh, we also uh, uh, overnight Discord rolled out a lot more community features, so you'll start to see new stuff around the Discord. Please share it with. Uh, everyone you come across, we're starting to see that there's a lot of people uh, who are intimidated on Twitter and on Reddit to join us. I'm getting messaged by people who are asking, I don't have any formal training. Is it OK? I'm not I've never studied philosophy. Is it OK if I join things like that? Uh, the answer is, of course, yes. Uh, so please do share out uh, and get more people here because uh, more people is more fun. I don't think anyone here will disagree with that for sure. A uh, little bit of housekeeping before we get going. We are in the need of more uh, moderators, uh, people who can literally just do minor things, uh, keep the server running, let people in. One of our biggest things that we kind of have going at all times is uh, people being able to be let in when they get here. We don't have as many uh, moderators uh, keeping up on that, and a handful of us are starting to uh, having to do a lot more of it. But... Uh, beyond that, of course, we are looking for more people to run groups, readings, all sorts of things. The server is now set up to handle a lot more. So if you have a reading you think has an ish, has an audience or something that just a handful of you want to do, we are ready to uh, take you on. So just head to the volunteer here uh, channel at the top of the server and we will uh, take you on. Uh, anything else? I don't think there's very much else. Uh, how about the uh, rest of you guys, admins? Anything going on this week that we have to talk about and announce to our listeners at home? Yeah, um, let me see here. On Saturday at noon PDT, literature will be continuing our discussion more than likely with Nietzsche's birth of tragedy. Uh, last I looked, that's winning the, uh, the poll right now. So I think that's the test we'll probably be going with. And Sunday at 11 a.m. PDT is uh, Simon Dunn's continued discussion. Yeah, and then I'd like to mention that uh, we have uh, Heidegger Basic Writings on Friday at 3 p.m. And uh, Zizek uh, at uh, noon on Wednesdays. Isn't there... Uh, forgive me. There's a second time for Heidegger, too, yes? There's Heidegger being in time, but that's on the uh, Continental Philosophy server. Yes, our partner server. Oh, that's right. Uh, sorry. I, I, so there's two groups for Heidegger uh, basic writings. There's one centered in India and on the India time zone and one on the Western time zone. So the the one on the Indian time zone is 4.30 a.m. on Friday. And then the one on the uh, Pacific Daylight Time server uh, is three o'clock Friday. Nice. I think that's uh, trying to figure out if we can uh, uh, handle and be polite to people all over the world rather than just U.S. Uh, so it's it's good to see that we actually have people in both talks pretty regularly too. Oh, um, did y'all mention the Samondan group on Sundays? Uh, no. So, uh, that yes, Simondin as well. Uh, Sundays, what time is that at, Jack? Uh, 11 a.m. 11 a.m. 
Um, so we are pretty packed. We're we have room though. There's a there's 1,500 people here. Uh, we get most of them coming back to the server actually pretty regularly looking for content. So if you have a reading, uh, definitely hit us up. Um, I think that's. There's Go another ahead. reading, which is Foucault, Madness and Civilization, oh, uh, right. 5 to 7 Pacific Daylight Time on Mondays. And then uh, the last little thing is we are working on the zine, which is a compendium of all, a lot of the content made here uh, and written by members, created by members, drawn by members, painted by members. All sorts of fun things. We have uh, 3D models, everything. So if you have a desire to jump into there, again, hit the volunteer here or uh, whatever will jump you into the uh, uh, scene channel. So, uh, But with that, I'm going to go ahead and uh, dive in. Uh, is there anyone who'd like to give a, I don't want to say a summation, but I know we had uh, uh, a long discussion Monday last week, and then we also had the review session. Would anyone like to give some highlight notes as we dive into the rest of this section so we can have a jumping off point for those who may not be, maybe didn't reread everything last night? <laughs> not me. No? Jack? Yeah, um, at the review session, one thing we focused on in depth was the relationship of schizoanalysis and uh what's being called the cure and maintaining a contrast and just the position with psychoanalysis and uh, where it takes its cure and looking a little bit more in depth into uh, the incest prohibition and the Oedipal representation and the way they are created, which is not, um, not the intuitive way of saying the incest prohibition, uh, like gives birth to the Oedipal representation, but that there's really more of like a, um, uh, sort of like way they work together and, and sort of reinforce each other um, without that kind of like P then Q causal chain. Right. A lot of the earlier parts of the section are deeply focused on essentially talking through uh, the, what they call the first socius and uh, the primitive man and how primitive man came to either be subsumed or have uh, Oedipus sort of written over their history and talking through how Oedipus does that, the process and all of those things, which is essentially where we're coming into uh, as we continue our reading. Uh, and I think with that, I'll go ahead and uh, jump straight in to uh, the paragraph and we will begin our reading. This is not to say that the universal Oedipal limit is occupied, strategically occupied in all social formations. We must take Cardiner's remark seriously. A Hindu or an Eskimo can dream of Oedipus without, however, being subjected to the complex, without having the complex. For Oedipus to be occupied, a certain number of conditions are indispensable. The field of social production and reproduction must become independent of familial reproduction, that is, independent of the territorial machine that declines alliances and filiations. The detachable fragments of the chain must be converted, by virtue of this independence, into a transcendent, detached object that crushes their polyvocal character. The detached object, the phallus, must perform a kind of folding operation, a kind of application or reduction, uh, a reduction on the social field, defined as the aggregate of departure, to the familial field, now defined as the aggregate of destination, and it must establish a network of one-to-one -one relations between the two. For Oedipus to be occupied, 
it is not enough that it be a limit or a displaced represented in the system of representation. It must migrate to the heart of this system and itself come to occupy the position of the representative of desire. These conditions, inseparable from the paralogisms of the unconscious, are realized in the capitalist formation. Furthermore, they imply certain archaisms borrowed from the imperial barbarian formations, in particular, the position of the transcendent object. The capitalist style has been described by D.H. Lawrence, our democratic industrial order of things whose style is, my dear little lamb, I want to see mommy. Uh, that's what we want to start with this week, apparently. <laughs> um, I, I probably lost half of the podcast listeners, and I'm like, oh yeah, I'm not doing this. Um, anyone want to start? Well, I, I think we ought to remember what went before this paragraph, uh, because, um, uh, you know, in, in the in the two paragraphs before this, he mentions the absolute limit and the relative limit, and then he mentions the imaginary limit and the um, real limit and the uh, displaced limit. And so it's it's kind of interesting that it's though those mentions of these various limits is kind of a combination of um, you know imaginary, symbolic, and real of uh, Lacan. And uh, and the kinds of things that he talks about in uh, difference and repetition, which is absolute limits and relative limits. So it, it it's interesting that the you know productively what he's producing you know in this theory you know Deleuze and Guattari together uh, is um, is like a combination of the imaginary, symbolic, and real plus the kinds of things that he is concerned with the difference and repetition, which are uh, eminence and transcendence in relationship to eminence. All right. Um, I'll take another uh, uh, stab at one. I think the the early part of this uh, is talking ultimately about how uh, primitive man has the ability to consider Oedipus. It's an idea. It's a thing they can, as he puts, uh, they can dream of it without being subjected, without literally having Oedipus subsume them. Uh, and the ways that it has to be there in order to subsume are the following, and he goes through a handful, which is the part I'd love someone to spend a moment or two explaining it, what each one of these mean, but they're effectively the symptoms of the disease carrying over to the primitive man is is kind of how I read that. Well, I think, um, I mean, so if we go back to chapter two, one of the things you remember is that, uh, so the nuclear family is not the cause of edipalization. What happens is that the but the nuclear fa- family work as you know they work as uh, they they are what almost so they're not the cause but they're necessary in allowing edipalization to take place so um, that's why they say right we cannot just say oh so it's the prohibition of incest that acts as a form of social repression you know that causes the displaced representative and the signifier that crutches the referent of uh, the germinal flux of desire. We can't make a statement like that because, you know, in order for social repression to work, the tools of social repression in a way are psychic repression. And uh, psychic repression happens in the family, I think, for Deleuze and Guattari at least. And I think that uh, social repression 
can I mean social I mean I think that the prohibition of incest can only you know be edipalizing in the case that the family is also structured in such a way that allows for such thing to occur. And that's why in the last chapter, right, they talked about all the things that happen in the family, right? Uh, these almost subtle things of uh, global persons, uh, by univocalizations, right? So extrapolation uh, or the creation of lack. So that's the example of the phallus or the mythic transcendent object of representation, you know, which refers to the illegitimate use of the connective synthesis, which is the global, global and specific rather than non-local and non-specific. And then we get to the double bind, right? The exclusive... Uh, the exclusive use rather inclusive and non-restrictive, and then you have bio vocalization in the in the illegitimate use of conjunctive synthesis. All these together, you know, they create the docile subject that's allowed for uh, that's allowed for the so the the social repression to take place or the prohibition of incest to enact its sort of prohibition. So I think that they're recapping that in a way. That sounds spot on. Thank you for that, Varun. Yeah, and I think to that point, too, one thing I've been reflecting on is there's a way that something like the Oedipal representation has to be able to circulate, um, similar to how we talked about the circulation of women in these societies. And I think that's part of what they're expanding on here, to Varun's point, is that um, this society's territorializations, its structure, the social repression that's here, isn't able to um, allow for Oedipus to become a complex or structure, if you like. And, and like Varun's saying, it's because uh, in a large part, you can't get Oedipus to circulate in the family in the way that it that we know it to and that, that it um, structuralizes in our context because the these societies don't have that kind of circulation network. And so that in that way... Um, there's the, the there's kind of this necessity that social production reproduction be tied up with uh, familial production, and in these societies, in the primitive societies, uh, you don't have that connection where everything's falling back in that way. Yeah, but yeah. Medicalizing, you can create that network for circulation and for falling back in that manner. I think, you know, to read the prohibition of incest in, 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 you know, I think they make this point also. It's like to, to read the, to, to read the prohibition of incest in, uh, at least in the primitive society of savagery, as we looked at that, I think to read the prohibition of incest as actively repressing, uh, that's already an Oedipalized, you know, Oedipalized interpretation of the prohibition of incest, right? Because keep in mind, they don't have the similar similar structure of the nuclear family with all its bio-vocalizations or all, all its illegitimate uses of paralogisms as we had in, as we have in, you know, the current state of capitalism where there's a divide, a, a massive divide versus social reproduction and desiring production. So, you know, I guess the, I think one of the points they're trying to make is to interpret the prohibition of incest in such a way it's already an Oedipalized take. It's that's that's why we're already Oedipalized, because we're interpreting it in such a way that, oh, so it's automatically caused by all of this. Yeah, pr- precisely. Um, if, if we were to go back in, into the section, right, we've seen how the Oedipal complex is about, it's not just about a relationship of sexuality, it's about what it does to all the other relationships of sexuality all the other desires in that manner. And and in this primitive society, those those flows and everything, those networks don't give don't give themselves up to Oedipalization. So that's why like um 
to that point, like there's a there's a way that it has to be connected, like they're saying, in a one-to-one manner, such that Oedipus can circulate because um, the social repression of the uh, the primitive societies is through the filiative and the alliant. It's not. It doesn't have the nuclear family, like Varun's saying. Uh, it has other other mechanisms. Uh, one thing that we should uh, mention uh, is the fact that, uh, you know, th- they're saying that for Oedipus to take over in a primitive society, you know, it says for Oedipus to be occupied, a certain number of conditions are indispensable. And then he goes through five different conditions uh, in a process. You know, the first one is the field of social production and reproduction must become independent of familial reproduction. Two, the, de- the detachable fragments of the chain must be converted by virtue of this independence into a transcendent detached object that crushes their polyvocal character. Three, the, de- the detached object must perform a kind of folding operation. Four, it must establish a network of one-to-one relations between the two. And five, it, it must migrate to the heart of the system and and itself become, come to occupy the position of the representative of desire. Exactly. Those are basically the five paralogisms. Exactly what you said. Those are exactly, that's also what I was talking about, is the five paralogisms that are prevalent in the nuclear family, as we saw last time. Thank you for all of that. I, it helps me understand a great deal more about this. Uh, and I think, um, uh, no, it's just great. really like that. Good shit. Um, All right, I'm going to continue reading. Now, on the one hand, it is evident that the primitive formations do not come close to fulfilling these conditions, precisely because the family, when open to alliances, is coexistive with and adequate to the historical field, because it animates social reproduction itself, because it mobilizes or causes passage of the detachable fragments without ever converting them into a detached object. No reduction whatever, no application is possible that would answer to the formula 3 plus 1, the four corners of the field folded into three like a tablecloth, plus the transcendent term that performs a folding operation. Speaking, dancing, exchanging, and allowing to flow, and even urinating in the midst of the community of men, as Perrin himself puts it, to express the fluidity of the flows and the primitive codes. At the heart of primitive production, one always finds oneself at 4 plus n in the system of ancestors and affines. Far from being able to claim that here there is no end to Oedipus, one sees that it never manages to begin. One is always brought to a halt well before 3 plus 1. And if there is a primitive Oedipus, it is a neg Oedipus, in the sense of neg entropy. Oedipus is indeed a limit or a displaced represented, but precisely in such a way that each member of the group is always on this side of or beyond, without ever occupying the position. Cardner has understood this very well in the formula we cited. It is colonization that causes Oedipus to exist, but an Oedipus that is taken for what it is, a pure oppression, inasmuch as it assumes that these savages are deprived of the control of their own social production, that they are ripe for being reduced to the only thing they have left. The familial reproduction imposed on them is being no less edipalized by force than it is alcoholic or sickly. 
uh, to read the footnote uh, that goes with this. Uh, regarding the coextensity of marriages with the primitive social field, see Jolin's remarks, page 256. Marriages are not governed by kinship laws. They obey a dynamic that is infinitely more complex, less rigid, whose invention at each moment utilizes a number of coordinates of another order of importance. Marriages are more apt to be a speculation on the future than on the past. And in any case, these marriages and their speculation derive from what is complex, not from what is elementary, and never from what is rigidly fixed. The reason for this is not by any means that man knows laws, only so he may violate them. Whence the stupidity of the concept of transgression. One thing this reminds me of is earlier they wrote that Oedipus Ats is a kind of, if I can remember correctly, Oedipus Ats is a kind of euthanasia for, um, isn't ethnocide, not genocide, ethnocide. And I think that last sentence in this paragraph really demonstrates how that works because so euthanasia is often presented as something along the lines of uh, where someone is suffering so much or they're at a point in life often that uh, they're looking for a way out through death, right? And there's a, a peaceful way for them to go in that sense. What I like about this sentence is the euthanasia seems to be in recognition of of re-territorializing, of changing these networks to to connect differently and to flow differently and placing new things in circulation and taking other things out. And in that way, I think you can really start to see what they're talking about in terms of like, uh, right, like the ethnocide almost works as the social repression here and the social like re-territorializing. Um, and then you can see on the other side that something like the the Oedipalization, the Oedipal representation, and the way that it helps, uh, it provides like a way of dealing with the fear of decoded flows, provides a kind of euthanasia for these, um, for the colonialized people. It also sounds as though he's saying here, um, the... The way to think of the three plus one versus four plus n, uh, which is uh, the difference between a society that cannot be autopolized versus one that can, is all it takes is simply having one of the things from the previous uh, uh, paragraph missing. And at that point, it's impossible. Am I reading that correctly? Sounds as though that's the code that he's giving out. No? Could you repeat that? I, I'm not sure. So when, when he says, uh, it mobilizes or causes passage of detachable fragments without ever converting them into a detached object, no reduction whatsoever. No application is possible that would answer to the formula 3 plus 1. The four corners of the field folded into three, like a tablecloth. Uh, he's talking about the, the, field of, uh, the field of the society. It sounds like he's talking about the previous paragraphs, four or five items, uh, the things that are required for the Oedipus to be part of it. No, is that not what he's referencing? Yeah, I think that's how I'm reading it too, in the way that like the the society before it's re-territorialized is not circulating a detached object or a phallus. It's circulating detached fragments in that sense. And so like um yeah, I think you're right. This is a way of uh furthering how these conditions compare with one another 
and how the society's uh, forms of social re- social repression uh, contrast with one another, and how they can um, sort of re- be re-territorialized. Yeah, well, and I'd love to understand also what they talk about when they say if there's a primitive Oedipus, it is a neg Oedipus in the sense of neg entropy. Uh, terms I don't understand necessarily. So negative entropy is ordering. So there's an ordering that is occurring with Oedipus. The three plus one is the, you know, the father, mother, and son plus the sister. Or like Jung talks about the, you know, the Trinity plus Mary. That's the reference they're making. I don't, sorry, I don't see how it connects uh, today. I, I think that the sentence that follows it might help in the way that Oedipus is indeed a limit or a displaced represented, but precisely in such a way that each member of the group is always on this side of or beyond without ever occupying the position. Uh, so in that way, I think what they're, they're trying to show us is that um, Oedipus as a neg entropy, or like Kent is saying, as an ordering, works in this way of a limit. Um, a limit that is also like a deplaced represented. One way you can think about it is like the three plus one is a system. That's the Oedipal system. But uh, the four plus N is opening that up into the meta system. You know, and then and then what's interesting is that he's using the fold or origami is, um, you know, is being referenced here that he referenced before in one of those steps that the the. There has to be this folding operation. All right. Uh, I will continue reading because I think we begin having a few moments that uh, I start to explain a little bit of this as we go further on. Unless anyone would like to read, I always toss that out, knowing I would get very few. I'll volunteer if no one else. All right, Jack, go for it. All right. I believe we left off. Uh, on the other hand... On the other hand, when the requisite conditions are realized in capitalist society, it should not be thought on the, that account that Oedipus ceases to be what it is. The simple displaced represented that comes to usurp the place of the representative of desire, snagging the unconscious in the trap of its paralogisms, crushing the whole of desire in production, replacing it with a system of beliefs. Oedipus is never a cause. It depends on a previous social investment of a certain type, capable of falling back on family determinations. Sorry for the French. It will be objected that such a principle is perhaps valid for the adult, but surely not for the child. But in effect, Oedipus begins in the mind of the father, and the beginning is not absolute. It is not. It is only constituted starting from investments of the social historical field that are affected by the father. And if it passes over to the son, that is not by virtue of a familial heredity, but by virtue of a much more complex relationship that depends on the communication of the unconsciousness of the unconscious. With the result that, even in the child, what is invested through the familial stimuli is still the social field in a whole system of breaks and extrafamilial flows. The fact that the father is first in relation to the child can only be understood analytically in terms of another primacy, that of social investments and counter-investments in relation to familial investments. 
This will be seen later at the level of an analysis of deliriums. But already, if it appears that Oedipus is an effect, this is because it forms an aggregate of, desti of destination, the family become microcosm, on which capitalist production and reproduction fall back. The organs and agents of the latter no longer pass through a coding of flows of alliance and filiation, but through an axiomatic of decoded flows. Consequently, the capitalist formation of sovereignty will need an intimate colonial formation that corresponds to it, to which it will be applied, and without which it will have no hold on the productions of the unconscious. That's a great uh, paragraph. It's sort of a recapitulation of everything. So, so uh, I, I just think that we ought to, uh, this paragraph kind of uh, brings a reminder that, uh, you know, the incest uh, taboo, the, the whole purpose of it is to support, uh, you know, the uh, patriarchal system so that the uh, men know that the children, which children are theirs, so that their names can be passed on. And, uh, and so then these, uh, these incest relationships, which are like the paradoxes that appear within that system, like the father uh uh daughter relationships the 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 mother son relationships you know it turns out that that if you look at statistics the mother son relationships are very rare the the father daughter relationships uh that uh go against the taboo is much more uh prevalent and and then also there's child abuse so you know, I mean, what's interesting is that the what the whole psyche, psychic economy is being interpreted in the Oedipal system uh, by a rare occurrence rather than the predominant occurrence. Yeah, I mean, uh, I think, uh, yeah, I don't think that's what they're saying here, though. I think, I mean, so primarily what they're saying is at least it's, it's that the family allows the conditions for edipalization in the sense that it has you know the the global objects and all that stuff and by univocalizations and um, and uh, double binds at place but what happens is it's it's it, it's from that that's it's that that we have docile subjects and social production is able to you know then work with the prohibition of incest to bind desire to you know a locale that's unsavory almost you know the the incest locale for example when we have the displacement of desire through that that signifying regime in a way of, of the prohibition um i think what's interesting is they start talking about you know this this aspect of the father right one of the questions if you go to chapter four they start asking is like what comes first the father or the son and um, you know, for 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 psychoanalysis, it's 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 like it's uh, you know you're always trapped in this it's in a spot where it's always a return of the repressed from childhood, and in this sense, you don't consider the entire social field. And what they're regurgitating back is that you know because since we've not considered the social field of placing social repre social repression as a primacy, we've had all these you know paralogisms everywhere. Um, you know, Wilhelm Reich was the first person to talk about social primacy, social prim uh, social repression's primacy in this way, but he didn't really he didn't have the concept of desire machines to uh, merge the two economies, libidinal and economic. 
And so in this case, uh, but you know, under capitalism, the divide is the greatest, right? And that's why you have, that's why they also give the explanation for the decoded flow and stuff like that. So, and it's under the nuclear family that this divide is expressed in such a way. And it's so from these conditions that the, that the conditions are apt for edipalization. Well, you know, in savage societies, in a way, what they're talking about is, you know, they're talking about affiliative and affiliated relationships. So from these relationships, essentially we have, uh, you know, we can't even we can't we can't superimpose the prohibition of incest in the same way because, you know, how, how is the family structured in, in these relative relationships? Well, completely differently, and thus you know, thus we must consider it in a different way. Well, uh, so the two paragraphs where we started today, um, I, I kind of want to jump a little bit back there because I'm wondering if the way that this is written uh, in this section is essentially talking about uh, how. <laughs> how Oedipus and its conditions become realized, and Oedipus ultimately is formed as almost a machine. They talk earlier in this chapter uh, quite a bit about, and throughout the entire book, one, we know Oedipus is real. It's not that Oedipus doesn't exist. It's that it very much does. But at the same time, they're also saying that there is a series of conditions that kind of build the structure that produces uh, Oedipalization. Uh, I made the comment last week about the zombie that can take any desiring flows from anywhere and is constantly shitting out the Oedipal triangle. Conceptually, what they're talking about here is the mechanics and the mechanizations behind that and how it works. And they, the, the specific things they talk about, uh, the conditions that are indispensable, is effectively the different pieces of the Oedipalization machine that gets created and starts spitting out Oedipalization through everything it takes on. And when they talk here, uh, it's the things I really like in this section is what it says. Oedipus is never a cause. Uh, it depends on previous social investment of a certain type capable of falling back on family determinations of subsuming them, taking them in. The way I would read this, the last few paragraphs is essentially saying, look, here is how the machine is built. These things have to exist before Oedipalization of a society can commence. And once it's commenced, we need to understand that Oedipalization is not where it starts, that there's these other things that it's subsuming, and these other little pieces kind of got put in place that caused this sort of uh, feedback loop that is Oedipalization. Yeah, it's a genealogical question, right? It's uh, what are the possible conditions that allowed this to occur? And the possible conditions are, they're varied, right? They're, they're the division in the nuclear family between limited on economic activities or the way the nuclear family has double binds, buy-in vocalizations, and these segregated or, or exclusive use of disjunctions or global objects and all and the transcendent phallus, for example. And essentially from these divisions, when, when, when there's a prohibition of incest imposed over it, uh, we have psychic repression uh, produces subjects that are essentially... So, so from the primacy of social repression, right? Psychic, the role of psychic, so psychic repression, I guess, for social repression works more as a tool, right? That psychic repression causes you to desire more social repression in a way. And uh, in, in that sense, it's, 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 it's from that psychic repression that we have docile subjects to be allowed to be repressed by the social repression and from the social repression that that's placed as a primacy for Deleuze and Qatari, uh, the prohibition of incest can work that way to create Oedipalized desire. Now in the, you know, in the affiliative and affiliative families, you know, we need, we need to be more careful if we're going to make that claim, right? Because we're not in capitalism now. We are in, you know, what they deem the savagery society. And so if we move into the capitalist society, this thing they're saying at the very end of the paragraph here, but through an axiomatic of decoded flows, consequently, the capitalist formation of sovereignty will need an intimate colonial formation that corresponds to it, 
to which it will be applied and without which it would have no hold on the productions of the unconscious. Essentially, uh, without the oedipalization that came in through colonization, which happens with psychic and social repression, uh, they would never effectively be brought into uh, the sovereignty that is capitalist formation. Yeah, but I was focusing on this sentence, I mean, this phrase that says Oedipus begins in the mind of the father. And the beginning is not absolute. It is only constituted starting from investments of a social historical field that are affected by the father. So in the patriarchal system, the val- the, what the father values is knowing who his children are so he can pass on his inheritance to them. So and the- would that, so, because, okay, sorry, I'm, I'm, I apologize, Can't, I'm having it. The point is that the that father uh, daughter and and uh, mother son incest are um, are rare corner cases that are produced by the, the 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 system of repression by which the men uh, are in charge of the women and uh, you know use them for uh, social reproduction. So then, would those be in effect in a matriarchal society as well? Or is this part of where they're talking about, because they've talked earlier uh, at this point about how uh, it doesn't matter quite as much, that it was a matriarchal or patriarchal society, that the Oedipal Triangle essentially forces things to become centered on the father? It, 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 you know, it doesn't work in matriarchy, because in matriarchy, it's the, it's the, it's the, uh, the wife's brother who's the important figure who acts as the father. It's a completely different system. The, per- okay. the person who, the person who is responsible for the children is the the wife's brother, not the father. The father yes, comes were, in. Father they talked about in. the uncle earlier. Yeah. The father comes in and out, uh, and, and but the but the women stay at home, and and so the the brother takes over the role of the father, like in my society. Can you tell me where in the text you're getting this from? Some kind of I'm sorry, I'm, I'm a bit slow in this regard. Okay, so so the, the the thing that so we keep talking about Oedipus, we keep talking about mother son uh, uh, sexual relationships because that's what the focus the Freudian focus is and the Lacanian focus is. But I think it, it's good to remember the context, and the context is that what's important in the patriarchal system is knowing who the offspring are. And and so that's that's why the taboos exist. But then when you put the taboos in place, there are these corner cases like father daughter incest, uh, son uh, sister incest, mother son incest uh, that become paradoxical within that taboo system. And what the Freudians have done is they have taken the most rare case, you know, just looking at his statistics um where 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 they uh they try to estimate uh how much uh mother son incest occurs and it's very rare compared to father daughter incest and so and so the freudians have taken the rarest case and made it the universal desire you know, the, there's, and then they projected that back on children. So, so that's why 
we see this as a perversion of the normal economy of desire. Now, why would they do that? The, the reason they do that is to deflect uh, blame from the fathers. Um, wouldn't uh, I, I'm going to go back to earlier parts of this because it's I, I think this is a worthwhile discussion because I don't fully have a background in Freudian uh, everything. Uh, but I'm going to go with what Lou said. That's my reading as well, is that Luz and Gadari essentially rejected this because of how they talked about filiation and alliance and how uh, those things sort of uh, began in the, and they keep using the word savage societies, but savagery, uh, the primitive societies. So, Exactly. I, I agree with Lou in that point is that I, I, I sort of, I don't think I really agree with Kent Palmer there because I think, you know, we can't make that sort of assumption because, you know, it's anthropological in the sense that we're looking at two different societies and they're completely different ways. We can't make that assumption. So I agree with Lou here. But they did talk about earlier, and I'm trying to find the exact part of this uh, because I know I was reading this in Holland last week as well. When they talk about uh, it's not so much that, and they, I think they were directly talking to Freudian uh, uh, thinkers or Freud himself, that the moment that uh, Oedipus creates that desire, it's about sort of creating that tributary of flows away from the main desire and giving a place for that unbridled place to go. But the, the reason that the, the thing, the time they were doing that happened almost simultaneously, that upon the Oedipalization, those desires are coded. It's not that the desire actually exists prior to that, or it's also not that the desire is created by the prohibition. It's neither one of those, that uh, it's it becomes part and parcel of the cessation of the desire and the, and the Oedipalization. Unless I'm reading earlier parts wrong, I'm trying to find the section. My, yeah, my recollection. So my my point is just that they're rejecting Oedipus for good reason, and the you know the, the the you know you have to read it back against Freud and Lacan and see what Freud and Lacan are doing by uh, supporting this idea of uh, Oedipal incest between uh, uh, mothers and sons. Oh, okay. So I was mishearing uh, what you were saying. I'm sorry, Kent. I, how I was taking it is uh, is different. You're essentially talking through um, the the fact that we've had Oedipal, even from a purely almost historic, you know, historical scientific perspective, with everything, is that this is one of the most rare, exceptionally rare desires, and so it's such an asinine place for us to start with, anyway. Yeah, they've taken the they've taken the rarest case. You know, when people have studied this, you know, if you look for the statistics, it's the rarest case, and they've universalized it. So then you have to question why, and not only have they universalized it, you know, within Western society, they've universalized it colonialism and colonialization as well. And so then you have to say, well, who benefits from that? And the person who benefits is the father who's left out. In other words, Father-daughter incest is not concentrated on. It's considered an illusion. The real, the real uh, desire is the desire of the son for the mother. The, the father's left out. Interesting. Okay, understood. Um, any other comments before we move on? All right, I think we're on given these conditions. 
Yes. Yeah, yes. I, I, I think they're they're also talking about the father here. I think they're, you know, they're referring to the fact that psychoanalysis sort of treats the treats treats the person as they're you know sick from childhood, right? In a way, and so it's it's like the the child comes before the father in a way. Still talk about it in chapter four, and I think that's where their that's what their sort of illusions are. This when they refer to the father. And that, that, I mean, that's how they interpret, you know, the way psych, like Freudianism would uh, interpret the return of the repressed. Just wanted to point out too, right? Where these, like, so they say that that's, um, the fact that the father is first in relation to the child can only be understood analytically in terms of another primacy, that of social investments and counter investments in relation to familial investments. Uh, that will be seen later on level the analysis of delirium exactly and you know the way it's always they're always plugged into the social view of this right that's why they get the example of the schizo who hallucinates universal history right or the schizo becoming negro the sort of transracial becomings that they have because you know they're always plugged into that political field yeah and and to that point it's the social investments that that worked so as to creep into the into the, like uh, the father and then that to creep into the son if i can be uh if you'll give me the liberty to use the word creep there excellent i'm, I'm gonna move on um all right uh given these conditions what is there to say about the relationship between ethnology and psychoanalysis i think this was literally a comment last week we had on reddit why would you have ethnology in the title uh let's get to the answer must we be content with an uncertain parallelism where each contemplates the other with perplexity, placing in opposition two irreducible sectors of symbolism, a social sector of symbols, and a sexual sector that would constitute a kind of private universal, a kind of individual universal? Transversals between the two, since social symbolism can become a sexual material and sexuality a ritual of social aggregation. But the problem is too theoretical when posed this way. Practically speaking, the psychoanalyst often claims to explain to the ethnologist the meaning of the symbol. It means phallus, castration, Oedipus. But the ethnologist asks other questions and sincerely asks himself, of what use can psychoanalytic interpretations be to me? Hence the duality is displaced. It is no longer between two sectors, but really two kinds of questions. What does it mean? And what purpose does it serve? Of what use is it, not only to an ethnologist, but what purpose does it serve, and how does it work in the very formation that makes use of the symbol? I uh, will read the uh, footnote now. Roger Bastide has systematically developed the theory of the two symbolic sectors. In Sociologie et Psychoanalyse, but starting from a viewpoint that is analogous at first, E.R. Leach is led to displace the duality, causing it to pass between the question of meaning and that of use, thereby changing the scope of the problem. See Magical Hair, reference note 24. We'll figure, I'll get to that while someone's re, you know, going over this. Whatever may be the meaning of a thing, it is not certain that the thing serves any useful purpose whatsoever. It is possible, for example, that Oedipus serves no useful purpose, either for psychoanalysts or for the unconscious. And to what use could the phallus be put, since it is inseparable from the castration that deprives us of its use? Of course, we are told not to confuse the signified with the signifier, but the signifier takes us beyond the question. What does it mean? Is it anything other than the same question, only this time barred? This is still the domain of representation. 
one thing I'll say that I really like about this this particular paragraph and what they're doing in this chapter too is right. So if it, we're we're starting to see how something like even ethnology or anthropology in some level maybe, but there's a way in which these other disciplines not only may they, might they have a, a discourse with psychoanalysis as we've seen, but there's a way even in which they take on an oedipalization or an Oedipal representation. I think it goes to show how deep this stuff's ingrained into culture, like the fact that, um, I mean, I think primarily, uh, you know, our primary thoughts in the Prohibition Fincest is already very determined. And if you go on those thoughts, it's, it's these thoughts come from somewhere, right? And then, you know, they're, 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 these, these are going on in sort of uh, a way where, it's all deeply ingrained in our interpretations of everything in the world in the sense that, you know, these structures we find everywhere. And I think that's what they're getting down to and how Oedipalization, how I mean, you know, our, so I think the primary, I mean, this is how some people inter- the, interpreted the, prim- the prohibition of incest as castrating in the first place rather than it could be, you know, maybe the, the familial relationship was different in that primitive society. Um and the fact that this universal structure of Oedipus can be found everywhere, even in ethnology and stuff. Yeah, and to that point, if anything, what I'm getting, especially from the last few sentences of this paragraph, is that part of the reason it's ingrained is it's a... In fact, this kind of reminds me of something we talked about uh, with Heraclitus on Saturday, but this, this, at least the concluding part of this paragraph seems to be getting at... Even, even if you look at this semiotically, where we're dealing with signifieds and signifiers, the Oedipal representation is so appealing, even if it's not useful per se, or that is to say, even if it doesn't necessarily do something within these things, because it gives you a way to understand and talk about all this. And right as soon as you apply the Oedipal representation, you're, you're bringing in a discourse and you're bringing in all these studies and you're... You know, you're gaining a whole way to discuss these um, these these societies, but also to to enforce the reterritorialization of them. With that, I'll move on. The true misunderstandings, the misunderstandings between ethnologists or Hellenists and psychoanalysts, do not come from a faulty knowledge or recognition of the unconscious, of sexuality, of the phallic nature of symbolism. In theory, everyone could reach an agreement on this point. Everything is sexual or sex-influenced from one end to the other. Everyone knows this, beginning with the users. The practical misunderstandings come from the profound... No, Siri, what? Sorry, apologies, I'm going to start that over. Siri thought I was talking to it. In theory, everyone could reach an agreement on this point. Everything is sexual or sex-influenced from one end to the other. Everyone knows this, beginning with the users. The practical misunderstandings come rather from the profound difference between the two sorts of questions. Without always formulating it clearly, the ethnologists and the Hellenists think that a symbol is not defined by what it means, but by what it does and what is done with it. It always means the phallus or something similar, except that what it means does not tell the purpose it serves. In a word, There is no ethnological interpretation for the simple reason that there is no ethnographic material. There are only uses and functionings. On this point, it could be that psychoanalysts have much to learn from ethnologists about the unimportance of what does it mean. 
when Hellenists place themselves in opposition to the Freudian Oedipus, it should not be taught that they put forward other interpretations to replace the psychoanalytic interpretation. It could be that ethnologists and Hellenists will compel psychoanalysts, for their part, to make a similar discovery. Namely, that there is no unconscious material either, nor is there a psychoanalytic interpretation, but only uses, analytic uses, of the syntheses of the unconscious, which do not allow themselves to be defined by an assignment of a signifier any more than by the determination of the signifieds. How it works is the sole question. Schizoanalysis foregoes all interpretation because it foregoes discovering an unconscious material. The unconscious does not mean anything. On the other hand, the unconscious constructs machines, which are machines of desire, whose use and functioning schizoanalysis discovers in their whose use and functioning schizoanalysis discovers in their imminent relationship with social machines. The unconscious does not speak; it engineers. It is not expressive or representative, but productive. A symbol is nothing other than a social machine that functions as a desiring machine. A desiring machine that functions within the social machine, an investment of the social machine by desire. That, that's a good chat. That's a good. That's a good paragraph. I like that paragraph. I mean, uh, on the fold, the laws talked about this as you know, taking. And he takes this from Simondon, right? And Simondon in crystallization, it's going from structures into operations, you know, and that's why they use the term machi machine, right? If you read that essay by Gattari that he published, Machine and Structure, the whole point of that essay is to go away from structures into operations, and operations are understood as machines defined by a set of syntheses. Now, I think what's key is that they're actually referring to something, what they were talking about in chapter one, right? That's the example of the knife rest. What good was a knife rest if all we were given was a physical description of its properties right so they can you can't understand something from that and that's something like that's what they mean by meaning or representation in a way because it doesn't explain genesis and from that notion of understanding and, and this even goes to you know to university in a way is what Deleuze was talking about difference in repetition that you can't understand something from applying predicates to it you have to understand something from its capacity to affect or be affected he takes that notion from spinoza and uh, in this way that essentially if you understand i think and in this way, you're getting to uh, the base of non-representation, which is genesis or a genetic account of what, what of ontology. And I think that's what they. I mean, that's why they have to use the terms machines as productive. And I think in that way, they get to an unconscious that's fully imminent. Or you know, instead of finding the possible transcendental conditions as Kant did, they find all the all the real conditions for for all real experience rather than possible experience of Kant. I think that's what they're trying to do with this sort of. On transcendental materialism, almost they're built up in this book. If, if I can make a request of the Simondon group, if we can actually go over, because it, it's 100% taken from uh, Simondon. So if we could go over that a little bit this week, uh, I, I would gladly join for that. And I usually don't have time on Sundays, but it would be worthwhile going over uh, where this concept comes from, because it, it is very much with that background. That would be great. Uh, so we'll keep an eye out uh, onto Genesis. We're going to discuss in the seminary group. Excellent. Yay. That makes my day. Um, any other thoughts on this on this paragraph? Because uh, uh, it's pretty great. Just to, just to make a short point about schizoanalysis and the differentiation between psychoanalysis 
um, and to kind of uh, to look at the concluding point, um, right, because they're going from like the difference between uh, ethnologists and psychoanalysts uh, and their methods uh, to go into psych- uh, schizoanalysis and what it's going to do, which is that it's, um, it recognizes the unconscious as constructing machines uh, and the way that those machines are, have an imminent relationship with social machines. So one thing I like here is they're looking at the unconscious as an engineering, um, as an engineering entity, I suppose, but as something that engineers rather than speaks. So it's it's creative, it's constructive, um, and in that the, the idea is that the unconscious effectively builds the structures that machines come out of. That's that's again what as I mentioned, it's going to the rather than all possible conditions of experience, all real conditions of experience. And I think, you know, I think one of the key things is that essentially they're talking about there's no teleology here, you know, and that's why we have we have to understand things from capacities in a way. Because if you don't understand that, then you've created a false sense of teleology that they're uh, that they're talking about. At least in this case, then you know they don't have to have any sort of ankle. And that, that's also very important, right, for the example of the knife rest. Well, and, and a good deal of this is uh, directly referencing, I mean, ultimately, the, the goal of this project, which is to talk about a materialist psychoanalytic view. And that's the idea that these machines are real as they go over, and they say many, many, many times. The machines are real, even the unconscious ones. They are things that are producing, that they are connecting. They are working within a lot of things that are happening around. Um, uh, the The idea of having that machinic view, materialist view of these elements, even ones that uh, generally speaking, and I know this is, uh, uh, if, if the Zizek group ever wants to go over uh, organs without bodies, it's one of the things Zizek really rails against. Uh, but it's one of the things that always attracted me to Deleuze uh, personally, is the idea that uh, these elements are, I know organs without bodies is garbage. Faroon, you go over this every week. Um, but I, but I think there's a, there's a, an attraction for me about the idea that all of this can ultimately become materialist rather than having this sort of psychoanalytic layer, which also is very attractive to me, but having that be sort of in the clouds, uh, as they say, uh, in this little paragraph, which I really like. I think one of the things that actually Zizek says, and I, he goes against pretty far. I mean, one of the things, as I said, they're trying to do is they're trying to make libidinal economy the same thing as political economy. And that's why they say sexuality is everywhere, right? Desiring machines are at work everywhere. And, you know, one of the things that uh, Zizek actually makes the point is that you can't have libido applying to all these concepts. Like, I mean, so Zizek sort of says that, you know, you can't say that the way we invest in the social field is the same way in, in way we invest, you know, when we stick a dick up someone's vagina or something like that. And so I think that's one of Zizek's main point that you can't say sexuality is everywhere. I don't know. What do you think about that, Brooks? Well, I mean, and at the same time, I, I, you can say that Zizek goes against that, but he's also absolutely says uh, what they say here at the opening, that everything wall to wall is about sex. And he's got those jokes about it and everything is ultimately about the phallus and it's about sex. And it's like, yeah, so you're like, it's again, Zizek, uh, I adore him. Sometimes he says things I don't really, uh, that don't gel necessarily uh, at all. And it it's true. It's not just about dick of someone's vagina. Uh, just saying. There's a lot of opportunities there, but it's an example. Um, 
But I just, I just love this uh, this paragraph, and uh, we should do a reading, or I'll, tomorrow during the review, I'll I'll bring up uh, the in Chaosophy, uh, Felix Watery has uh, the balance sheet for designing machines, which actually references uh, this pretty heavily, and we'll go over a few quotes from that. I won't, you know, make everyone listen to him today, so we can get through this section. Any notes before I continue on? All right. Uh, it has often been said and demonstrated that an institution cannot be explained by its use any more than an organ can. Biological formations and social formations are not formed in the same way in which they function. Nor is there a biological, sociological, linguistic, etc. functionalism at the level of large determinate aggregates. But the same does not hold true in the case of desiring machines as molecular elements. Their use functioning, production, and formation are one and the same process. And it is this synthesis of desire that, under certain determinate conditions, explains the molar aggregates with their specific use in a biological, social, and linguistic field. This is because the large molar machines presuppose pre-established connections that are not explained by their functioning, since the latter results from them. Only desiring machines produce connections according to which they function, and function by improvising and forming the connections. A molar functionalism is therefore a functionalism that did not go far enough, that did not reach those regions where desire engineers, independently of macroscopic nature of what is in, it is engineering, organic, social, linguistic, etc., elements, are all tossed into the same pot to stew. The only... The only unities, multiplicities, that functionalism must know are the desiring machines themselves and the configurations they form in all sectors of a field of production. A magical chain brings together plant life, pieces of organs, a shred of clothing, an image of daddy, formulas and words. We shall not ask what it means, but what kind of machine is assembled in this manner? What kind of flows and breaks in the flows in relation to the other breaks and other flows? Um... I, I, it's a paragraph I actually uh, think I understand, which happens once in a while. But uh, just to quickly go over, they're talking about the need for us to not look at things as all giant sort of large-scale things, institutions, uh, whatever is large-scale, they just flat-out refer and go right to molar and molecular and instead encourage us to continue to break down the little desiring machines, uh, the apparatuses that uh, make it up. And if we still haven't been able to figure out what it does, then that means we just need to break it down further and further and further until we get to that very base level, thousands, millions, whatever it may be, machines that each of which do a thing. And that thing then feeds into another machine and we're able to begin tracing that out. And with that gigantic collaboration constellation of machines, that becomes the molar institution, which you can't say an institution necessarily is a use or produces something, but the machines all do. Yeah, I think that's exactly what they're talking about in the sense that, you know, I think another interesting thing that they say is, you know, they have a university of machines here, right? I, I think, you know, Deleuze wanted to put everything on a plane of eminence, but he still kept intensive hierarchy and difference of repetition. You know, the hierarchy of intensities, despite the fact that the hierarchy, the ontology of uh, was completely imminent. And I think it, in in it's similar with machines here, right? It's very similar to that. You know, there's still intensities which are hierarchical, right? The zero in relation to the full body without organs of potentials and stuff like that. But um, in this case, uh, 
in, in this case, there, there's still, in, in terms of the university of machines, in the sense that I think they say that each machine can be plugged into another machine, right? In the same way that the orchid can reproduce with the wasp, right? There's something of a, there's a giant sort of plane of eminence in the regard that, you know, that the, you know, so, you know, I think if if we look at this from a very superficial view, we can say that the, that, 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 you know, orchid and wasp are two completely different entities, but they're on the same plane of ontological eminence in the regard that they can both connect to each other in this manner. And I think that's what they're trying to say also is that since they're all univocal, everything is a machine as they state, right? So let's say everything is a machine, but not everything is a desiring machine, right? Because desiring machine has to have the connection of flows. But if everything is a machine, it's almost in a way it's like saying everything can connect to everything. Like something so alien as an orchid and a wasp can interact with each other to produce an entity. You know, it's like that whole, I think there was a whole debate back actually when this was happening with Descartes, Descartes who said that essentially that you can't have uh, machines, machines can't reproduce or blah, blah, blah. But, you know, in this regard, these machines do reproduce because they find these even with alien sources, right? And then they're, I think even, even Simon Don in the mode of existence of technical objects is a debate that he's answering to is how do machines reproduce? In this regard, the orchid and the wasp, two completely alien entities are still on the same plane of ontological eminence in this regard. I, I love the the sentence in here that is basically a direct, uh, almost like they were speaking to the con as he's reading this. Um, a magical chain brings together, it feels like that's really sarcasm. And so I'm saying it. A magical chain brings together plant life, pieces of organs, a shred of clothing, image of daddy, formulas and words. Is that the Canian symbolic chain uh, that makes up a lot of what he considers to be uh, the issues people may have, the problems they have in life. And they're like, no, no, the chain... The chain's what's produced. The chain doesn't do anything. So the question would be, what kind of machines actually make that chain? And that's a much more useful way to look at uh, their, essentially, that sentence to me is their entire pitch around materialist uh, psychoanalysis. Really like that. Any last thoughts before I continue and move on? Excellent. I always put it out there. You never know. Uh, Analyzing the symbolism of the forked branch among the Ndembu, Victor Turner shows that the names given to them form a part of a chain that mobilizes the species and the properties of the trees from which the branches are taken, as well as the names of these species in turn, and the technical procedures with which they are treated. Selections are made from signifying chains no less than from material flows. The exegetical meaning, what is said about the thing, is only one element among others, and is less important than the operative use, what is done with the thing, or the positional functioning, the relationship with other things in one and the same complex, according to which the symbol is never in a one-to-one relationship with what it means, but always had a multiplicity of reference, being always multivocal and polysemous. Analyzing the magical object Buti among the Kakuya of the Congo, Pierre Bonafé shows how it is inseparable from the practical syntheses that produce, record, and consume it. The partial and nonspecific connection that combines fragments from the body of the subject with those of an animal. The inclusive disjunction that inscribes the object in the body of the subject and transforms the latter into a man-animal 
the residual conjunction that causes the residue to submit to the long voyage before burying or immersing it. I'm not going to read the uh, bottom part. It's an explanation of that. If present-day ethnologists are again evincing a lively interest in the hypothetical concept of the fetish, this is unquestionably due to the influence of psychoanalysis. But it would seem that psychoanalysis offers them just as many reasons for doubting the notion as it offers for attracting their interest. For psychoanalysis has never said phallus oedipus castration more often than apropos of the fetish. Well, for his part, the ethnologist senses that there is a problem of political power and economic and religions, religious force inseparable from the fetish, even when its use is individual and private. Hair, for example, the rituals of hair cutting and coiffure. Is there any interest in referring to these rituals, referring these rituals to the phallus entity as signifying the separate thing? And in everywhere re-encountering the father as the symbolic representative of the separation? Wouldn't this be tantamount to remaining at the level of what it means? The ethnologist finds himself before a flow of hair, with the breaks in such a flow, and with what passes from one state into another through the break. As Leach says, hair as a partial object, or as a separable body part of the body, does not represent an aggressive and separate phallus. Hair is a thing in its own right, a material part in an aggressing apparatus, in a separating machine. Right, yeah, I think that's ontological eminence, right? You can't, yes. it, it, they're trying to keep that sort of multiplicity of, you know, this thing is that, is, is, is its own thing. It's not a representation of something else, or it's not a, it's, it's, it's not repeating the act of, of the return of the repressed. It's just, it's just the thing as it is, you know, the, the train is not, is is not the repetition of of, of of daddy's cock or something like that as you know melanie klein had it it's just the train is the train the train is the, the train and it's being produced there the connection to it is being produced by machine what machine produces xy activity around the train or the signifying chain that happens around the train right and uh you know, but you have to keep in mind also what they're talking about is before a relationship that sort of exists before edipalization. You know, fundamentally, in a way, the train automatically does start to signify the the, the, uh, the father's penis. In a way, once the edipalized relationship occurs, but you know, there's another way of these things operating below the at the level of the referent. Well, and, and I think that's so. To get into that, that that is them saying effectively, look, this is how the the primitive mind, uh, the primitive societies work, is they have these machines that produce stuff. Now, what Oedipus does is Oedipus is a machine that actually takes in the things other machines produce and produces Oedipus. It's almost a meta-machine that kind of reproduces things in its own image, and that's the that's the sort of, you know, a, a difficulty in the direction it takes, and because it can take those things on and actually digest what other machines are creating. That's the terrifying part. That's uh, they keep getting back to that. I would only say though, it, it might be useful to, to compare Oedipus with a machine, but I'm not sure it is a machine. And everything's a machine. It is a machine. Yeah, and I, I'm, I'm hesitant to say it's not. But there's also like there's where we get the Oedipal representation. I, I don't know. I would, I would say, necessarily. maybe if I can cut, a, cut in here real quick, um, I would say that it uh, sort of also, also 
has something to do with the boundaries of language and translating French into English, perhaps before because, like, uh, agencement, uh, like it would be something machinic, but it would also be a process simultaneously. So this is true, uh, and actually, a lot of times they use uh, apparatus in some other writings when they're referring to a machine, which can also mean structure. Uh, which is an interesting... Yeah, thing. exactly. Those are interesting pathways to sort of discover as well. But I have to be honest, I haven't read uh, from Antiodeep uh, before. No, that's, it's, it's, a fair, it's a really fair point. We've actually got our resident guy, Roger, who now at this point, I think, just does not join. Like, he's very active on the server and we talk all the time, but I think he doesn't join because we've kind of put him in the role of, oh, you, you know the translation and you have it in front of you? You get to be our translator, and I think he's sick of that. Um, but I, every, the, the short version is, I, I, I think we've also got a boundary of language to add on to what uh, uh, I'm going to guess Jan uh, was saying. Sorry, I don't. Uh, Jan, Jan. Yeah, Jan, um, whatever. Jan. <laughs> it's, um, a, it's a complicated history, so. Yes, um, but uh, the... The thing we're also hitting is that when we refer to Oedipus, we are referring to a, a bit of kind of both. Uh, and it's a limitation in how we're talking about these things because it. Yeah, I understand. Every, that. Everything I is a machine. That the context as well. Yeah. Yeah. So it, everything is a machine and everything yeah. is producing. There are reference that are not machines, they're singular. Uh, the, the torn piece of paper, all of those things. Now, it can be broken down further as yet another machine. Uh, and that's kind of the point they're making to this is that you need to keep going until you stop asking uh, the why and instead see the thing that's made and what it does. When a machine does something, that's where you kind of don't have to break down quite as much anymore. Um, but we are ultimately talking about Oedipus is absolutely machine. They talk about uh, earlier in the section, uh, actually from our talk last week, God, this is a big section. Um, they actually talk directly about it being a machine and how it takes things in and how it uh, moves things around into being part of the Oedipal Triangle. So for sure, uh, I, we'll, we'll talk during the review of this tomorrow because I think this is a worthwhile discussion to have. But Yeah, um, if, if I can join in or if we can connect somehow as well, because we're doing a reading group for uh, basically like the other side of capitalism and schizophrenia simultaneously. We just started uh, and we just got to a body without organs. <laughs> Um, and it would be interesting just to audit, you know, some of the, some of the moments in your sort of entanglement with the book. Oh, we have, we have quite a few and what, what's great. And, um, I'll, I'll edit this out of the final podcast. And what's great about thanks, it is thanks, all, yeah. all, all the different, uh, uh, people we have in here and all the different sort of opinions. It's one of the things that makes it absolutely amazing. Uh, I don't, if you weren't here earlier, uh, Kent and Varun come from very different places and being able to hear the two of them have, have conversations about these things essentially gives me, Oh, here's what I need to go read now. <laughs> here's what I, I like. Cool. It's like Cliff's notes. Like, cool. I'm going to cheat off Kent and Varun as they argue or whatever. Yeah. Talking about. Um, but it's, it, I, I'll say, uh, I've read A Thousand Plateaus, and The Thousand Plateaus I find to be, um, I don't want to say easier or more difficult, 
in my experience personally, I find a thousand plateaus to be much more poetic and interesting and my brain can wander sort of through the writing. Whereas with this, it's so deeply clinical that there's a million reference I do not have. And it's one of the things that helps me go through is having people like Varun and Kent and the other people here who have, you know, uh, uh, I have some Lucanian background, but I don't have as much as we've got some people here who are ridiculous, uh, Freud, just in general. So uh, but you're free to join and pop in and out for sure. And please invite uh, anyone else from your group to join. Uh, okay, we'll do, we'll do. We'll, we're meeting... Uh tomorrow uh that's utc plus two uh at 11 so i'll definitely uh, throw it into the group cool and they feel free to have them join the review our, our review happens noon pacific time us okay cool uh, yeah um uh, coming back to the original point though everything has to be a machine otherwise you know some sort of i mean otherwise their ontology just doesn't make sense in a way right otherwise you can't have that notion of ontological imminence anymore but I just want to mention that the um, machine has a very special meaning that's, that isn't suggested by the word machine as we normally use it. You know, it, it has the, the, the special meaning of being something prior to the split between nature and human reality. Yeah, exactly. I mean, that's why it's, 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 a, it's at a, one, it's at a pre-individual level and to it's 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 referring to an operation rather than a structure right the example of the knife Absolutely. Rest. it's not a knife rest of descriptions it's a knife rest rest that can be used for men, men, multiple different things and multiple different potentials you know understanding something's not from some what some what something is but rather understanding a, a thing from what its potentials are and what what its capabilities are and what it can do well, I think it's the use of machine as I, I found troublesome until someone explained to me kind of uh, and had me read a few of the other different works that use other languages around it. Uh, machine in Western, especially in America, has a very uh, gear based produces a thing a structural like it's it's very, very based in uh uh, the machinic sort of nature with gears and all of that. When in reality, what we're talking about is actually just a series of things ultimately that interact and produce a thing uh, through the, through those interactions is ultimately what they mean by machine. You know, a, a translation that might be better is operand. You know, because that's, that uh, to connect it back to Simonda, and that's what he says is that the, it's all about operations, and Deleuze has brought up that before. That's the process of crystallization for Simon Don, and I, that's also that's what how Deleuze refers to him in the fold. So, so, so the problem is that machine in English suggests suggests some of the wrong things, and that's why uh, you know referring back to the French, which is mechanic plus process, is a good thing to keep in mind. To quote uh, Chaosophy, we are not using a metaphor, however, when we speak of uh, machines operants. Uh, humans constitute a machine as soon as this nature is communicated by recurrence to the ensemble of which they form a part under specific conditions. Uh, they, they really, really want to drive home the idea that it's basically a series of nodes in a network that interact and produce a thing just by the nature of those interactions. So, um, all right. Uh, would anyone like to read the next paragraph? 
I think, uh, actually, are we coming up on the end here? We might be. All right. Uh, I believe we're up once again. Once again, it is not a question of knowing if the essence of a ritual is sexual or if it is necessary to take into account political, economic, and religious dimensions that would go beyond sexuality. So long as the problem is put in this manner, so long as the choice is imposed between libido and Newman, the misunderstanding between ethnologists and psychoanalysts can only be aggravated, just as it continues to grow between Hellenists and psychoanalysts apropos of Oedipus. Oedipus, the club-footed despot, who clearly invokes an entire political history that brings into conflict the despotic machine and the old primitive territorial machine, whence derive both the negation and the persistence of aut... Son of a bitch. Can someone say that word for me and tell me what it means? It's, I think it's autokathani. It means to be produced out of the earth. To be produced out of the earth. occurs naturally organic in origin great and literally no one has there's like multiple ways to pronounce this word auto otakthane that's great okay uh i will i will re-say this um whence derive both negation and the persistence of autochthony brought into clear relief by Levi Strauss. But this is not enough to desexualize the drama. On the contrary, in reality, it is a question of knowing how one conceives of sexuality and libidinal investment. Must they be referred to an event or to something that is felt, which remains familial and intimate in spite of everything? An intimate, Oedipal feeling, even when it is interpreted structurally on behalf of a pure signifier? Or rather, is it necessary to open sexuality and libidinal investment onto the determinations of a social historical field where the economic, the political, and the religious are things that are invested by the libido for themselves and not the derivatives of a daddy mommy? In the first instance, one studies large molar aggregates, large social machines, the economic, political, etc. And this entails searching for what they mean by applying them to an abstract familial whole that is thought to contain the secret of the libido. In this way, one remains in the framework of representation. Uh, and the, the word is autochthony, autochthony, uh, and it does mean uh, coming from the earth. So the, to say the, the sort of essence of that sentence, Oedipus, the club-footed despot, uh, whence derive both the negation and the persistence of uh, the persistence of believing that it came about naturally. Uh, Oedipus did not come about naturally. It did not come from the earth. It did not come here, come from within us. It is a thing that was created after the fact. It's not autochthonied. Autochthonal. I'm, I'm never going to use this word again as long as I live. That's a fun fact, if everyone wants to know. Uh, the reference here is to the myth in uh, Greece where men sprung from the earth. It was a kind of uh, general mythology uh, in Greece that the, the, uh, the original men sprung from the earth. I think 
part of this is also in regard to the fact that, you know, the way the way psychic repressions work, I mean, the way repression works for psychoanalysis is that, so, you know, we're naturally predisposed to an Oedipus complex, right? It's a universal structure that will occur. And we're also naturally predisposed to sort of repress it in a way. And actually, I'm not sure naturally part can be applied for the latter bit that I said, but um, I think... In this case, there's a primacy to this natural aspect that Deleuze and Guattari are really trying to reject in this way, in the sense that it's a, you know it's all these complex relationships, right? The, the phallus that comes in the illegitimate uses and these transcendental misunderstandings or paralogisms in this case that cause repression to bear on the referent, the referent being desiring production. So when they say at the end of this paragraph, in this way one remains in the framework of representation, is that a... Uh, to to kind of get a grasp as they're trying to push back towards the materialist conception that they have. Uh, they're essentially saying at the end here, when you are looking at these large molar molar things that exist, these massive systems and machines that are machines of machines of machines, uh, and you've taken them and applied them to effectively edipalize them, you're staying within the abstract. There is no materialist reality with what you're dealing with. I'd like I like to mention the Gao book <clears throat> called Oedipus, the philosopher. He kind of puts this whole thing in context of the normal myths of the hero and the initiation process and says that Oedipus is a philosopher who has failed the initiation process. Yeah, I think Gao is also cited. I think symbolic, I mean, I don't know if it was symbolic economies or Oedipus the philosopher, but I think it's cited a couple of times in Oedipus. He he also wrote a, another book called Symbolic Economies, which I recommend as well. It's good. Those books are good to get a context for what's being talked about here. Yeah, I think symbolic economies and Oedipus the philosopher are what cited in Oedipus. Uh, I think what's relevant here is the myth of Cadmus. I, I think it's worth going back and looking at the myth of Cadmus because uh, Otto Cathani plays a role in there that the, um, you know, Oedipus is searching for a place uh, to have a city and then uh, they uh, they discover a dragon and when he sows the dragon's teeth, the the the, the men spring up that become the the men of the city that um you know that he's founding interesting so his slays the dragon takes the dragon's teeth sows them in the ground and from the ground and the dragon's teeth grow the men that will lead his city right and the the key point in that myth i think is that so when all of these men spring up you know, like, say, a hundred of them spring up from the dragon's teeth, he throws a stone among them. And so then they set to killing each other, and the five that are left over are the ones that he founds the city with. So it's like an image of primordial chaos out of which the city arises. Sorry, I'm reading the link. Interesting. 
The dragons in uh, Western mythology that get slayed are normally the uh, representative of existence. And so, for instance, um, Zeus kills the uh, typhoon and uh, uh, Apollo kills the python. Typhoon and python are basically trans transpositions of the same letters. So there's a primordial fight with a dragon that where that the hero uh, dominates the dragon. Uh, if I'm not mistaken, uh, and it says in here, uh, Cadmus uh, ultimately bred the line uh, that became the rulers of Thebes all the way through the Trojan War. So he, the the primordial birth of the basically the ruling class and hierarchy of one of the largest, oldest Greek cities. That's fascinating. Well, Oedipus is in his line. Right, right. Interesting. But Laius is the father, and he's the key figure because he's the first one to uh, have a homosexual relationship. So there's a miasm where Oedipus is suffering from the sins of the father. That's great. Uh, the link is in the chat. Um, hmm. Any last notes before we move on? All right, I'll read the last paragraph, and then uh, we'll discuss a little bit. We have a little bit of extra time. Uh, which is good, because I have a feeling we have a lot to talk about. Uh, in the second instance, one goes beyond these large aggregates, including family, towards the molecular elements that form the parts and wheels of desiring machines. One searches for the way in which these machines function, for how they invest and undetermine the social machines that they constitute on a large scale. To say that again. Uh, for how they invest and undetermine the social machines that they constitute on a large scale. One then reaches the regions of a productive, molecular, micrological, and microphysical unconscious that no longer means or represents anything. Sexuality is no longer regarded as a specific energy that unites persons derived from large aggregates, but as the molecular energy that places mole molecules partial objects, libido, in connection, that organizes inclusive disjunctions on the giant molecule of the body without organs, Newman, and that distributes states and being and becoming according to domains of presence or zones of intensity, voluptus, voluptus, whatever. For desiring machines are precisely that, the microphysics of the unconscious, the elements of the microconscious. But as such, they never exist independently of the historical molar aggregates of the macroscopic solar formations that they constitute statistically. In this sense, there is only desire and the social. Beneath the conscious investments of economic, political, religious, etc. formations, there are unconscious sexual investments micro-investments that attest to the way in which desire is present in a social field and joins this field to itself as the st statistically determined domain that is bound to it. Desiring machines function within social machines as though they maintained their own regime in the molar aggregates that they form at the level of large numbers. Symbols and fetishes are manifestations of desiring machines. 
Sexuality is by no means a molar determination that is representable in the familial whole. It is the molecular undetermination functioning within social and secondarily familial aggregates that trace desire's field of presence and its field of production, an entire non-Oedipal unconscious that will only produce Oedipus as one of its secondary statistical formations, complexes, at the end of a history bringing into play the destiny of social machines, their regime compared to that of desiring machines. Yeah, I want to go back to what they were saying about symbols. I kind of lost it there because I felt like I was a bit confused there. I mean, I think they were saying something very important, but I think we just missed it. I think we should read that sentence again. I, I will not disagree with you. This 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 yeah. paragraph's packed, and they are going over a lot of things that it, that is in a paragraph that's already long and yet somehow still packed. So it's worth breaking down. This feels, unless anyone disagrees, this feels like actually a summation of this entire section pretty cleanly. That's yeah, what I, mean, I was yeah. getting as well. I think one of the things that we have present here is the Nietzscheanism. It's the aspect, you know, I think one of the things they want to get, you know, Nietzsche's concept of the herd and stuff like that, right? So that's why they say, you know, it's uh, when, when, when people start coming together, right, forming social groups or social holes, what we have is sort of molecular, I mean, molar formation starting to come in, right? And it's from those... It's, from collectivity or the social whole is forming or associates that's formed when multiple people called come together. Well, let's actually just talk about uh, one specific, uh, and it's, I, I love the sentence because it's very clear. Symbols and fetishes are manifestations of desiring machines. Uh, here, the way that we need to talk about things is uh, talking about things in uh, Deleuzean terms, as far as what the virtual is. Uh, Virtual is the interaction and the manifestation of those interactions that we're able to perceive. It's a perception game uh, in a lot of different ways. But the, the, the actual things that interact are the material world. They're the machines. They produce the thing that is virtual. That thing that is virtual here, symbols and fetishes, are manifestations of desiring machines. I feel like it's virtual that is being referred to because manifestations is such a specific word. And I believe they use that... I, I don't I don't believe it's imperceptible. It, mm. Okay, it is imperceptible, uh, uh, Varun, in the sense that uh, I, I'm not able to see it. It is symbolic, but it is virtual in the sense that it is a the thing that is created how, due to the interactions of different items. It feels like virtual here is playing a role, at least what he's talking about. And they use it quite often virtual in reference to uh, computer screens as an example of a thing that is virtual. It's it's an interaction of parts that we're able to perceive. So it is perceivable, but it's not necessarily uh, something that is not real. It has yeah, been it a while for me since Diff and Rep 2. You're not alone. I don't remember. Do they say it's imperceptible? I'm just, I'm just, it's kind of hard for me to remember. I'm sorry, it's not It's not at any point is the virtual imperceptible because they use virtual and, and scholars sense have used uh, Deleuzean term of virtual very cleanly to talk about specifically the digital world and computer screens and the interactions there uh, that are virtual. They're a layer behind. They're, they're uh, a, one abstracted layer beyond the direct interactions of things. They are the thing that is created from the interactions. A virtual, it has to do not with possibilities, but potentials, right? That, you know, they go back. Into right. And it's it, it's kind of the potential, it's, it's where the potential is almost collapsing, but it's that they're like at the, the moment of interaction, basically. 
think so when they talk about symbols symbols is such a freudian concept right as symbols is like it's almost a very representational concept almost right like you see you see the object of a pencil and you're like that that's that symbolizes in a way a penis in a way right i mean okay not necessarily sure but i mean i think what they're saying is you know even if it's uh even 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 if it's uh what's it called even if it's uh even if it's a dream, right, a representational dream, it's still a machine, but it's a machine or a desiring, it's still a desiring machine that's been turned on itself. Even if it's, you know, Oedipus, right, even if you have an Oedipus complex, it's just the way desiring machines have been assembled. It's just the way desiring machines have been assembled in the social field. No, the virtual, I, I, don't, I don't know if it's real only by its effects. I mean, the virtual is, 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 is real in the sense that all these potentials are stored in the environment, right? The virtual is real in the sense that if you go through evolutionary theory and you, 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 you shift the clock backwards and you realize that there are all these potentials that are just not actualized, but they are there in the environment. And, you know, they're contingently actualized in a way. And these, these potentials are real. So... You know, they, they are they are they are like things. He I don't so that, that's why he makes such a such a big distinction between possible, right? It's not possible. It's possible has that whole idea of it can be, cannot be. I think the whole thing about virtual is that it's a real thing in the environment in a way. It's it's uh, to quote uh, the line uh, Proust says, which is is actually a lot earlier in uh, AO. Uh, uh, virtual is real but not actual. Ideal but not abstract. That's the, the Proust line that they use. And and Bergson uh, references it quite a bit as well. So the idea behind the virtual is uh, the material things that literally exist, the material reality of the world have interactions. Those interactions uh, ha- produce things that as if they were real, uh, but uh, they are the surface effect of, of the interactions. Uh, to quote, I'm just gonna take straight from Wikipedia. Uh, Deleuze's concept of the virtual is two aspects. First, the virtual is a surface effect produced by actual causal interactions at the material level. When one uses a computer, the monitor displays an image that displays phys- that depends on physical interactions happening at the level of hardware as well as with the user. The window is nowhere in actuality, but it is nonetheless real and can be interacted with. This example actually leads to the second aspect of the virtual, its generative nature. The virtual is a kind of potentiality that becomes fulfilled in the actual. It is not material, but it is real. That's uh, the the part where where they're talking about um, symbols and fetishes. The desiring machines effectively are producing them and creating them. They are real. They're not material, but they are real, and we need to consider them real. When they talk earlier about the semiotic chain, and they use the torn piece of paper, the doll, the rock that's on the driveway, whatever it may be, the chain, all of those elements are are real. Those are material. Uh, I mean, uh, those are real. Those are the the things that exist. The machine that produces them is the thing that is material. It's made up of material reality. Yeah. I mean, I I think, I mean, everything is material in this sense. I think it's... No, um, everything is real in this sense, but not everything is material. There's a difference between material and real to them. Because real and virtual, they they use exchangeably. Fair enough, fair enough. But, you know, one of the things is that they say, you know, the body, in the, at least in when you go into thousand plateaus, right, we get the plane of consistency, the plane of consistency that contains virtual on the plane of consistency and all that stuff. 
I don't actually see a lot of that in anti-Oedipus, to be, to be frank. I, I don't see, I know they refer virtual, right? Oedipus is at a virtual state where, you know, it's not the, it's not, it's, it's, it's not desire and it's actual, but a desire can be actualized in such an Oedipalized way, right? It, it has the potential to be actualized in such an Oedipalized way. That's why they almost refer to Oedipus in a virtual sense. You know, I think in difference, I mean, in a thousand plateaus, right? That's why they say the body without organs is like that whole thing on the plane of consistency where the virtuals are stored, right? Right. You know, the thing is, I mean, is, is that the virtual is produced in this book in the sense that desiring machines, uh, I mean, the egg part goes later into intensive qualities, but um, in, 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 in Antiochus, it's, it's in the sense that the body without organs is produced at a certain stage of, after the first synthesis, right? So, so I mean, I, I, I don't see this. Is, I, I can't give an answer here because I'm not smart. I, I don't think there's necessarily an answer here. I think what... To me, what they're trying to describe uh, throughout this entire part is a summation of everything they've talked about. And what they're talking about is ultimately that uh, uh, the, for a long time, psychoanalysis has functioned as what does it mean? What does it mean? What is the thing? What is it really? When in, what they're saying is, no, what we need to do is you need to look at uh, what is making this? What does it do? And they, this is why they keep looking at ethnologists and what ethnologists are about. And they keep saying, hey, ethnologists are actually concerned with, well, what does this do? They don't really care what does it mean because meaning in between different cultures is seemingly meaningless to a lot of ethnologists, especially at this time. Uh, Levi Strauss kind of broke that down and they talk about that quite a bit. But their their big point here is that um, as uh, we start looking at everything around us, or specifically in this case, psychoanalysis, but I think it can be applied to everything, we need to look at what it does. And if we're looking at something that is molar, molar items can't do anything. That's not what they do. Institutions, molar things don't do shit. So what we need to do is we need to say, cool, let's break it down into its parts that do make things. And when we start looking at, well, this does that, this does that, and here's all these pieces and how they come together, that makes the molar, those molecular items, are the the sort of point that they keep going at. And so they're saying, don't look at the symbols and the fetishes. Sure, they're parts of this, but they're being produced. We instead need to look even deeper beyond the symbols and fetishes. That's what I think the sentence is saying is, hey, symbols and, and, and fetishes come about because of the uh, desiring machines that are ultimately creating them. And you need to continue to break down. Otherwise, you would say things like with a symbol, well, what does it mean? No, you want to know what does it do? Well, to know what it does, you need to understand its constituent desiring machines. That's how I interpret that sentence. And that was a fucking short sentence said long. Jesus. Yeah, that's why we can't understand the knife rest through predicates. We have to understand the knife rest from its capacities of affect and being affected, right? That great thing from Spinoza or the powers of intensity. Yes. Well, and, and I would argue, um, so Bergsonism, I believe, was written significantly after this. Um, it, was it, I think it was before. It was before? Yeah. It's from 66 or something like that. Oh, really? Well, yeah, I mean, well I'm reading this from the position of having uh, read Bergsonism a lot because it applies a lot more to sort of art and cinema and things like that. So it's more relevant to me. But Bergsonism feels uh, also where they talk heavily about uh, if you want something that's a good introduction into the idea of the virtual or how they're sort of looking at things. It's really worthwhile to read Bergsonism as a sort of a short guide. Uh, it's not an easy read. It's easier than a lot of reads, I would say. 
But anyway, uh, that that's how I read that sentence and sort of this entire paragraph is talking through that. And the other thing they're very much getting into is that uh, libido, so desire itself, the flows that is they keep using energy and they use a lot of terms that are very similar to electricity and how how things are moving between things and sort of circuits. Uh, uh, but again, talking about ultimately about sort of this underlying desire drive energy that's pushing things. Yeah, I mean, I don't want to go so off topic, but it's funny. I recently found these, like, if you go through some of these archives, you can find, like, Deleuze, as, like a young Deleuze, I think when he was, like, in his, like, 20s or teens or something, he was writing to Bergson, and you can find all these, like, 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 a, like a really enamored Deleuze writing to Bergson in, in French and stuff. It's a really interesting things you can dig up. They're really, really interesting, for sure. And it's and it's obvious. I mean, so much of his writing is deeply, deeply influenced uh, by a lot of Bergson's later works, for sure. Um, it's impossible yeah. to separate them. At least in my interpretation, right? When I read his book on Bergsonism, he, you know, he he talks about taking the author behind the back, so he goes pretty far away from I think Bergson. I mean, he goes he reads Bergson very differently than reading Bergson qua Bergson, right? He almost reads Bergson qua Nietzsche, and I don't think Bergson was actually the biggest fan of Nietzsche. Someone correct me if I'm wrong, but yeah, I don't think Bergson really liked Nietzsche that much. But Deleuze reads reads Bergson as a, through through his own understanding of Nietzsche, so he has some very interesting interpretations. Oh, it's interesting. I. I obviously came to Bergson through Deleuze. And so with that lens, uh, I very much read it with, you know, basically Bergsonism in the back of my head, as well as cinema one and two, where a lot of it's referenced. Uh, so I kind of, that would be, I would love uh, at some point, we should probably do a reading of something Bergson or a breakdown, because I'd love to really understand sort of if there is an understanding of Bergson's original intentions, because this is how I took it. It's good. Well, uh, does anyone have any last uh, thoughts uh, tomorrow? Uh, same bat time, same bat channel. We will be going through uh, all of our fun stuff here in the review. Uh, please join us again. Uh, if there's any last thoughts or notes on this, because it's um, we, get, we get to stop a few minutes early, which is nice. Yay. Uh, we will, I will find the link to um, Deleuze and Bergson, uh, the, the correspondence. There's a couple sites that have it. We'll, we'll post it up. Um, I'll also upload uh, Bergsonism and a few other things, perhaps in the uh, uploaded documents section, if you guys want to check that out. Uh, cool. Easy enough. Thank you all for coming very much. It's a good group. It's always nice to have all the different opinions. More of you, though, please talk. Uh, get involved. Uh, uh, I'm reading just everything now. Perun took one. It's, come on, guys. Jack took one. I mean, come on. We can do better. <laughs>